All right, so we're in Numbers chapter 31. I'm really excited because this is something that really hit me my last birthday. I thought, you know, I'm getting older here, and, and if there's anything I really want to do in life, I better get on with it. And one of the things I felt was, it's kind of crazy, I felt I really want to teach the book of Numbers. I think this is really important for Christians because Numbers is kind of the roadmap of the Christian life. It's, it's, and I'm, I'm an engineer, so I'd like to think in terms of maps anyway. And uh, so it, it, really, it really helps me, and this is a book that had a big impact on me as a, as a young Christian to decide I wanted to devote my life to studying and teaching the Old Testament to Christians because most Christians focus on the New Testament. So, so that's, that's really uh, had, had, had quite an impact on my life. So I really wanted to be able to dig in deeply and, and share this with others. So we've come to the end of the book of Numbers, uh, chapter, chapters 31 to 36, at the end of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, the, the Moses' death is approaching, and Joshua is going to be the one to lead the people into the promised land. The Israelites faced the last major spiritual challenge in the wilderness where the men were <coughs> drawn into sexual immorality and idolatry with the Moabite or the Midianite women in Numbers 25. And as a result of that, 24,000 people died. And what we're going to pick up here is really kind of a continuation of that story. So uh, Moses had conducted the second census of the people about 40 years after the first census. And uh, in going through the book of Numbers, there are some, let's say, some rather dry patches in Numbers. And so the way, the way we do it is we move quickly through the drier patches and like to focus on the more interesting things. So... There's some, some drier sections in the, at the end of the book of Numbers, but I think there's some gold that is in there as well. So I want to focus on that. Encourage everyone to read through all of the scriptures. It's all for our benefit. So we're going to continue that, that pattern going forward here. Numbers 31. So if you're hit, focusing a lot, it's going to hit the last, the last uh, uh, five or so chapters in the book of Numbers. In Numbers 31, we're going to begin there, and actually a lot of what we're going to cover is in this chapter. There's a lot here. So, Numbers 31, we'll start reading in verse 1. Now, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Exact vengeance from the Midianites for the children of Israel. Afterward, you should be added to your people. So Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm some of your men to stand in battle array before the Lord against Midian to repay vengeance from the Lord on Midian. From all the tribes of Israel, you should send a thousand from each tribe to stand in battle array. So from the thousands of Israel, they counted a thousand from each tribe, 12,000 armed for the battle line. Then Moses sent them a thousand from each tribe with their army, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, with the holy vessels, and the trumpets for signaling in his hands. So they arrayed themselves in battle against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and they killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian together with their slain people, Ebi, Zer, Rechem, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword, along with their slain people. They also took as plunder the women of Midian with their households, their cattle, and all their possessions, and they plundered their army. They also set in fire all the cities where they dwelt with all the unwalled villages. 
And they took as well all the booty and spoils from man and cattle. Then they brought the captives, the spoils, and the booty to Moses, to Eliezer the priest, and all the congregation of the children of Israel, to the camp at Araboth of Moab by the Jordan across from the Jericho. So, from the opening line of this passage, it sounds like this is the last big assignment for Moses. The Lord tells him to exact vengeance from the Midianites, and then he will be added to his people, which is a poetic way of saying he's going to die. The Israelites are commanded to repay vengeance from the Lord upon the Midianites. They are to be the agents of God's judgment on on, on these people, his judgment and wrath on these people. So, obvious question comes up, why is God so upset with the Midianites? Why did he direct them to be wiped out in such a uh, uh, catastrophic way? This goes back to story numbers 25 we alluded to, where 24,000 Israelites died in a plague because of that. And to to get the gravity of that, let's go back and, and read that from Numbers 25. This is understanding why the Lord insisted that the people be wiped out. Numbers 25 says, Now Israel remained at Satin, and the people were defiled by committing fornication with the daughters of Moab. They invited them to sacrifices to their idols. The people ate their sacrifices and worshipped their idols. So Israel consecrated themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was very angry with Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the rulers of the people, make a public example of them for the Lord, that the anger of the Lord's wrath may be turned away from Israel. So Moses said to the tribes of Israel, Each one of you kill any member of the household who was consecrated to the Baal of Peor. Now behold, a man of the children of Israel came and brought his brother to a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and all the congregation of the children of Israel. And they were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of testimony. Now when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he arose from among the congregation. And taking a spear in his hand, he went after the man of Israel into the chamber and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through her womb. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. But those who died in the plague were 24,000. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, stop my wrath from among the children of Israel when he was zealous with my zeal among them. So I did not utterly destroy the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore, say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and there shall be to him and his seed after him a covenant of eternal priesthood because he was zealous for God and made atonement for the children of Israel. Now the name of the man of Israel who was struck down together with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, a ruler of the household of a Simeonite family. The name of the Midianite woman who was struck down was Cosby, the daughter of Zer, the ruler of the nation of Amath, of the house of the Midianite family. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Be at enmity with the Midianites and strike them. For they themselves are at enmity with you and their deceit, inasmuch as they dealt treacherously with you in the matter of Peor, in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the ruler Midian, their sister who was struck down in the day of the plague because of Peor. So that's what God's that's why God's so upset with them. He's God is God is angry with the Israelites for getting involved in his sin, but he's especially angry with the Midianites, and he he 
tells Moses that he's going to be in enmity and he's to strike them down. So that's, that's the setup for why these people are getting wiped out here. It goes back to the story where 24,000 died in a plague where, because the, the, the Midianites had been seducing the, the, uh, the Israelite men into sexual morality and idolatry, the Baal of Peor. So, um, now note that the, the Midianites end up becoming bitter, bitter enemies to the Israelites throughout later on in their history. In the book of Judges, we see this over and over again. The Midianites are battling it out against the Jews, so they're, they're going to be a constant thorn in their flesh. Uh, and so I notice, and we're reading in the, the passage Numbers 31, one of the things I notice is that Phineas, who was the one who stopped the plague, has a prominent role. He is the one who's he's going to be issuing the, the signals with the trumpet to coordinate the battle for God's people. So I notice that's one thing I notice. Another thing I notice is that Balaam is one of the casualties in this war. Balaam the prophet. So... And uh, he, and we'll find out more. He was, he was more than just collateral damage. Okay, was was the the Midianites got defeated? Balaam was among them. He ended up getting killed with a sword as a result. The famous prophet. And the Israelites prevail in the battle. They kill all the men. They take the women, the cattle, and all the plunder. Burn the cities, and they return to meet Moses and Eleazar the high priest and the rest of the people after the battle with the twelve thousand. Prevailed. So let's continue in the story, Numbers 31. Uh, we're going to learn a little bit more about Balaam and the next passage here as we read through this. Numbers 31 and verse 13. Then Moses, Eliezer the priest, and all the rulers of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. But Moses was angry with the overseers of the army, with the captains over thousands and rulers over the hundreds who were coming from the battle line of the war. Moses said to them, Why did you take every female alive? For on account of Balaam's counsel, they were with the sons of Israel and caused them to depart from and despise the Lord's word. At the incident in Peor, when there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord, now therefore kill every male among all the little ones and every woman who slept with a man, but keep alive for yourself all the young girls who have not slept with a man. So uh, Moses upset that the women who had been involved in seducing the Israelite men and had been getting them sucked into their idolatry with the Baal of Peor, that, that the leaders of the troops had taken them all captive. He says, you should have wiped them out. Why in the world did you let them live? And then he says, they were the ones that Balaam had taught to seduce God's people. So we learn something very significant about the end of Balaam's life from this story. Um, it says in Numbers 31, 16, on account of Balaam's counsel, they, the Midianite women, were with the sons of Israel, caused them to depart from and despise the Lord's word at the incident of Peor when there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. So, you said Balaam's life ended really badly. Yes, it did. So, when we first encountered Balaam several messages ago, uh, 
I described him as an unusually complex character spiritually and said that, said that I look at his life spiritually as four phases. He starts off good, then turns bad, then turns good again, and then ends up very, very bad. So that, And we get to see how he ended up very, very bad. So he started off good. He declined to take the money to curse Israel when he was first. They tried to, to, to bribe him to come and curse Israel. He wouldn't, wouldn't, he wouldn't do that. And then he turns bad where obviously he changes his mind and the Lord sends an angel who's going to strike him dead. And that's when the incident, famous incident with the talking donkey. Uh, where, and then he turns good where he repents and he decides he's only going to say what the Lord tells him to say. And he refuses to curse the people, but instead he blesses them. But the ending is very bad because after he exits the scene, he goes and he's the one behind what happens in Numbers 25 with the Midianite women who were seducing them. That was Balaam's idea. Balaam, Balaam was a spiritually oriented person and he knew the one way that the Israelites could be defeated is if they turned against their God. And, and the easiest way to do that would be to use the sin of sexual immorality. Start with sexual immorality and then get him into idolatry. And at that point in time, their Lord will hate them and they, will be, they can be wiped out easily. And that's what happened. 24,000 people died in the plague and they, they incurred the wrath of the Lord as a result. Now, this obscure passage in Numbers chapter 31, Jesus assumes you know. In Revelation chapter chapter 2, let's read what he says to the church in Pergamum, one of the seven churches in Asia Minor. Revelation chapter 2. And you have to know this passage to appreciate what Jesus is saying, what we just read. This is to the church in Pergamum or Pergamos. One of the seven churches. Let's start reading in verse 12. And to the angel of the church at Pergamos write, These things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I'll give some of the hidden manna to eat. I'll give him a white stone and, a stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one except him who receives it knows. So, Let's think about this. The people who live in, in, in Pergamos, Jesus starts off uh, with, with appreciation for the situation that they're in. He says, he says, now think about this. I know where you live. I know the city that you're in. He says, 
where Satan's throne is. Imagine that, of all the cities in the world, that they're, they're, they're in the city where Satan has his throne, okay? Where Satan dwells. Not only that, but they'd also seen persecution. They'd seen one of their brothers, a faithful martyr, Antipas, murdered for his faith. Jesus saw that and he appreciated that. Uh, you know, I think about that, where Satan has his throne. I say, does, does Satan have his throne? Does Satan have cities where he has his throne? Does he, does he, or does he have his headquarters? Does, does he have something like that today in the world? Mm-hmm. Does he have special strongholds, especially in certain cities and locations? Okay. All right. Uh, Salem is uh, now for those of you who are not from Massachusetts. I'm about to fill you in. I know there's some people here who are thinking. I'm, I wonder if I wonder if I should move to Boston. I wonder if I should stay in Boston a little longer, or I should retreat to a more rural part of the country. Well, let me let me test your resolve here. Okay. All right. That direction is north. Okay. That's south. That's east, roughly there. About 10 miles east of here is where we're sitting. We're sitting in Wakefield, Massachusetts today. 10 miles east of here is a little city called Salem, Massachusetts. Okay? Uh, Salem, Massachusetts is the world headquarters of the Satanic Temple. All right? Now, that's, that's 10 miles east of here. Ten miles south of here is the city of Boston. Later this very month, on the weekend of April 28th to 30th, coinciding with Witches' Night, and and, uh, uh, according to pagan German tradition, the city of Boston will be hosting SatanCon 2023, which is billed as, quote-unquote, the largest satanic gathering in history. The event is already sold out, which is going to be at the end of this month. And it's also, the the little little saying that they have, little catchy saying is, a weekend of blasphemy and remembrance. Okay? This is in Boston, 10 miles south of us. All right. So, maybe some of you were thinking, a city where Satan has its throne. Oh, that must be Los Angeles. That's what I used to think. All right, it must be Los Angeles. Maybe it's New York City. Well, maybe maybe there's a stronger candidate we can put up for that. All right? So if that hasn't scared you away, now Jesus says, this is an encouraging thing. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. All right? So... Uh, <coughs> It's going to be an interesting month here, I think, in, 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 around, around Boston, because not only is this a satanic gathering taking place, but the evangelicals have decided that they're going to throw a convention a mile away from the other one, also in Boston, calling for revival and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in, uh, starting in Boston. So uh, a lot of things have started in Boston, like the American Revolution, okay? Uh, and we may see some more things starting in Boston here as well. So, uh, you know, one of my kind of uh, quirky things I like to do is I like to study my enemies. 
Okay? <laughs> I, I like to study my enemies. I want to know what their tactics are. I want to know how are they going to try to beat me? How have they overpowered and conquered in the past? And who's been able to beat them in the past? I like to study my enemies. So I'm thinking, what are these people up to? All right? The Satanic Temple. These are the people who are sponsoring this big event in Boston. I want to tell you what their message is so that we're prepared for it. And this, this is not what I would expect. The message is, first of all, Satan is not real. The whole supernatural world is not real. And guess who else isn't real? God isn't real either. That's what the, I, I figure all these people believe in Satan. They're following Satan. Well, who'd want to do that? I mean, you've got to be pretty dark to want to do that. So what is this? this is a completely humanistic philosophy based on the idea that Satan isn't real and there's no supernatural entity. And guess what else there's no? There's no hell either. All right? That's good news for a lot of people. So it's highly anti-Christian and secular humanist. And Satan is advanced as a concept even among school children and after-school Satan clubs as an imaginary friend. Satan is just an imaginary friend who wants you to be whatever you want to be, okay? And wants you to do whatever you want to do. He's your friend. He's your imaginary friend. And the agenda, should be no surprise, is the LB, L, I don't know how to have LGBTQ plus, uh, uh, the, the whole gender confused agenda is, is part of what they're pushing. And abortion as a sacrament. Okay, this is getting back to child sacrifice. Now, a counter position on this, you see, you say, well, these people don't even believe that Satan exists. Now, there's some, there's some Christians out there and some people who came from an occult background who, who turned away from that, who believe that organizations like that, that the higher-ups in the organization actually do believe in Satan, but this is a cover to make what they're, what they're believing palatable to everybody else. And, I mean, we certainly believe that Satan is real. Jesus said he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So Satan was in an exalted position and fell down as an angel who rebelled against the Lord. So, back to what Jesus said in the book of Revelation. He says, Revelation 2.14, I have a few things against you. You have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. That's Revelation 2.14. So it's interesting to me that the city where Satan has his throne, there are some members of the church who are following in the footsteps of Balaam, turning back to, turn, turning back to, to pull God's people into immorality and idolatry and corrupting God's people. So, some takeaways for me from the story of the demise of Balaam. Balaam was a prophet who, you may remember when we, from a few times ago, the Spirit of God comes on him and he, he utters incredible prophecy about Jesus that the early Christians really held up as, as being very specific and very powerful prophecies. So, someone can be used by God in an incredible way to do great things for God. 
and then turn very bad in the end. So we shouldn't be shocked or surprised if we see that happen. The New Testament is full of warnings about that, and the Old Testament's full of examples about that. People who fell. When we see things like that happen, if you live old enough, it's not if you see, it's when you see, okay? When you see things like that happen, people that God has used in a mighty way who turn, who turn away and turn wicked, that shouldn't shatter our faith because the scriptures are full of warnings that this stuff is going to happen, all right? So we need to be prepared for that when we see it, and we need to help young, younger Christians understand that, that as well. The foundation of our faith is not some church grouping, some denomination, some, some system that somebody's come up with or some personality. The, the foundation of our faith is that Jesus died in fulfillment of the scriptures and was buried and was resurrected on the third day in fulfillment of the scriptures. It had nothing to do with, with the bad people that have come along or have been corrupted along the way by Satan over, over the years since that time. So it's also a reminder to me that we're in a spiritual war zone. Okay? Now, some people have the idea that, that Christianity is like, it's like baking a cake. You know, you just, you just, you just, you know, you've got the ingredients, you've got the book, you follow what the book says, and everything's going to turn out okay. Well, no, it's not like that. You're in a war zone, okay? You're in a war zone where, where it's a battle between good and evil that's going on all the time. And, and we're warned about that. You know, being non-resistant, having non-resistant convictions doesn't mean being passive or being a conflict avoider. Phineas was a great hero because he saw the sin and he dealt with it and God ended the plague because of that, that kind of an attitude. So men of God are called to be spiritual warriors like Phineas was and he plays a key role in the battle here against the Midianites as well. The difference is we're no longer using the old weapons of the sword and the spear and shedding blood physically we're fighting a different war. We're called to be warriors to fight a different war using different offensive weapons against our foe. The weapons of speaking the truth, confessing and exposing sin, prayer, church discipline, things like that. These are the offensive weapons that we're supposed to be using in the battle against darkness. And the other thing is, is just a reminder. Satan is real and he is always at work. Peter talks about him as being like a lion that's prowling, looking for those that he might devour. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 2.11, let's not be ignorant of Satan's devices, of Satan's schemes, to be aware that Satan is real, and, and he is, he's after us, and he's after all the other people around us. Let's continue, Numbers 31. Starting in verse 20. It says that people are coming back from the battle and they've been defiled by being involved in war, touching dead bodies, killing people, everything else. Verse 20 says, Purify every garment, everything made of leather, everything woven of goat's hair, everything made of wood. Then Eliezer the priest said to the men in the army who came from the battle lines of the war, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord has commanded Moses. Besides the gold, the silver, the brass, the iron, and the lead, and the tin, everything that can pass through fire shall be purified. 
Otherwise it shall be purified with the water of purification. Therefore whatever cannot pass through the fire shall pass through the water. You shall also wash your clothes on the seventh day and be clean. And afterwards you may come into the camp. So there's a purification that needs to take place. And uh, sounds like there are two different types of purification. There's the, the things that you can pass through the fire without being destroyed would be the metals and things like that. You pass those things through the fire to purify them. And the things you can't pass through the fire, which would be clothing, things made of wood, animals, people, things like that, you pass those through the water of purification. We talked about that early, the water purification, which uh, one early Christian writer talked about is, uh, as being as foreshadowing baptism. So the, the idea of purification by water and by fire is, is a theme that carries throughout the scriptures. Um, and purification by water, the first thing I would think of is, is, is baptism. Many things happen when we're baptized. Uh, one of them is purification. Um, Hebrews 10.22 is talking about the Christians how what we have inherited is so much better than what existed under the old covenant, under the old priesthood, the old sacrificial system. And think about this line, it says, uh, Hebrews 10.22, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So that's, that's I mean, that'd be so, I think that's a reference to baptism. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he lists off a whole bunch of, of sins that, that people uh, get involved in, terrible sins. He said, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of, of our God. Uh, Titus 3.5, it says... God saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And of course, uh, in Paul in Acts 22, 16, Ananias tells him, and he's, he's recounting his, his conversion in Acts 22, he says, Now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So many things happen when we're baptized. We die to the old way of life, but there's a purification, there's a washing, there's a cleansing that takes place in the spiritual realm. Uh, when we're baptized, so and anybody who who is uh, who here who has not been baptized, that's something you need to uh, to really uh, take seriously and pursue. So most people in this room have been baptized. You made it through the water. You say, well, you know, if I've had to go through the water or the fire, I'll take the water. Well, I've got some bad news for you. You have to go through both. All right, you have to go through the water and the fire. Here. Uh, <coughs> Zechariah 13, I'm going to read from the uh, uh, New King James Version here uh, because this is one. This matches closer to the Matthew 26 quote. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones and it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord. Two-thirds shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I'll bring one-third through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them and say, This is my people. And each one will say, 
the Lord is my God. That's Zechariah 13, 7 to 9. So uh, God says he's going to test his people. The remnant is going to be tested by fire. That doesn't sound pleasant. That sounds painful. What does fire do to silver and gold? It refines it. It purifies it. It melts it. It melts it too. And it, 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 it takes away the impurities. Okay? This also reminds me of what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 9 about our faith being refined by fire. Peter's speaking about the hope that Christians have, the things that we're, we're looking forward to. And he says, In this, in, in our hope, we greatly rejoice, though for now, for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ whom having not seen you love, though you do not see him yet believing, rejoice with inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And then later on in 1 Peter in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, he says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing is happening to you. But rejoice to the extent that you participate in Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you also may be glad with exceeding joy. Okay? Um, I know enough about enough people in, in this room to know that many of you have been going through uh, painful trials and ordeals. Okay? And... Uh, Peter's words here says, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. You should expect that. This is what you should expect. This is the Christian life. In Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about that. This is what Jesus went through. In Hebrews 5, it says that although Jesus was a son, he was made perfect, meaning made complete through suffering. Jesus himself had to be perfected through suffering. And that's the very point that the Hebrew writers gets around to making in Hebrews chapter 12, is that we should look to him and that's what we should expect. That, we're gonna, that our, the Christian life is going to be a time of disciplining. It's going to be a time of suffering and struggle as God is bringing hardship into our life to test us, purify us, and refine us. Okay? So, if you've been purified by water, that's good. Then you get an opportunity to be further purified and perfected through fire. The rest of Numbers 31, it talks about the division of plunder uh, from the war and gifts to the Lord. In Numbers 32, uh, two, and a half, two, two of the tribes really like it on the east side of the Jordan River. They say, hey, why don't we just stay here? Let's, instead of going across and fighting all the people in Canaan, this is this is, this land of, of, of uh, Og and Sihon is really pretty good. We'd be happy just to stay here. And so they, well, they work it out in an agreement with Moses and they say, okay, here's the deal. You can set up your homes here and you can set up your sheepfolds here, but 
you have the men have to cross over and help clear out the land of Canaan, and then you can come back for the two and a half tribes. So that's the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh. So they're they're allowed. They work out a deal where they can stay on the east side of the Jordan River, but the men are going to go out and help clear out the, the west side and then come back again. So, uh, uh, so nine and a half tribes are going to settle in Canaan on, on the west side of the, the Jordan River and the other two and a half on the east side. That's chapter 32. Uh, in chapter 33, there's a recounting of the entire journey and all the places that they stopped along the way. Uh, it mentions that Aaron died on Mount Hor at the age of 123 in the 40th year of the Exodus, so there's some things helpful to, to nail down uh, ages and dates and things like that. And then Numbers 33, there's a warning. I want to read that. Numbers 33, verse 50. Now the Lord spoke to Moses west of the Moab of the, by the Jordan opposite Jericho saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, You're crossing over the Jordan into the land of Canaan. Then you shall destroy all the inhabitants of the land before your face. You shall remove their high places. And as for all their molten idols, you shall destroy these, and you shall remove all their pillars. You shall also destroy all the inhabitants of the land who dwell in it. For I give you their land as inheritance. Therefore you shall inherit their land by lot among your tribes. To the larger you should give a larger inheritance, and the smaller you should give a smaller inheritance. There everyone's inheritance shall be whatever falls to him by lot. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. But if you do not destroy the inhabitants of the land from before your face, it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be thorns in your eyes and arrows in your sides. And they shall be enmity with you in the land where you dwell. Moreover, it shall be that I will do to you as I thought to do to them. So this is a pretty stiff warning and really sets up what follows in the book of Joshua and especially in Judges and beyond that, what would happen to the people. So uh, so Moses is told to give some warnings and instructions to the Israelites before they enter the land of Canaan, and they're told to destroy the people who lit, dwell there as well as their idols. Remember from Genesis that the Lord had said to Abraham that the sin of the Amorites had not yet reached full measure, so that the corruption was had, had expanded to an incredible degree to the point where God says you're going to have to wipe them out. Uh, and so they're told to destroy the people and their idols, and they're warned, said, here's what you need to do, and here's what's going to happen if you don't do it. So God tells them what to do, and he tells them what will happen to them if they don't do it. He says, the people, if you don't wipe them out, they're going to be thorns in your eyes and arrows in your side, meaning they're going to be, they're going to be a pest to you. They're going to be an irritation and worse to you all the time if you don't deal with this. And he says, not only that, but I'm going to treat you as I was planning to treat them for your dis- as a result of your disobedience. So I think God also knew that that uh, if they let the people there, they're going to end up, you know, bad company corrupts good character. They're going to end up becoming just like the people there as well. So what I learn about here is God issues stiff warnings, but he gives us free choice. If we want to be foolish enough to disobey God and face the consequences, he's not, he's not a controlling God. He gives us free choice about whether we want to love him and obey him 
or if we want to disobey him and face the consequences of that. Right? Numbers 34 gives the boundaries of Canaan. Between This is the land between the Jordan River and the Great Sea, which would be the Mediterranean, uh, for the nine and a half tribes that are going to settle there. And then Numbers 35, there are cities for the Levites. Now the Levites uh, are not given any inheritance unlike the other tribes. So uh, they don't have any specific territory. They don't have any specific land. So they're given six cities, which are cities of refuge, and 42 more cities, which are just Levite cities. The cities of refuge are they're unusual places where, let's say you accidentally killed somebody. So it's not first-degree murder. It's not premeditated. It was an accident. And, you know, you uh, unfortunately you killed somebody by accident. Uh, and one of their relatives wanted to get vengeance on you is if you fled to a city of refuge and made it there before the other guy caught you, you're safe. And you have to stay there until the current high priest dies, at which point you're safe to go back to the land that you came from originally. So that's the rules for the city of refuge. If if it was first-degree murder, if it was premeditated, it doesn't count. This is only for accidental murder. This is the cities of refuge. So this is just a just a unusual requirement in in the uh, the Old Testament law. And then there's there's a beautiful passage. I just want to read it because I like it. Okay, it's at the end of Numbers 35. So God is concerned that the land of the people not be filled with bloodshed. Because, and he explains, he doesn't want the land to be defiled by blood. In Numbers 35, verse 33, it says, You shall not defile with murder the land in which you dwell, for blood defiles the land, and there's no atonement for the land for the blood shed on except by the blood of him who shed it. Therefore do not defile the land on which you dwell and on which I shall pitch my tabernacle among you. For I am the Lord who tabernacles among the children of Israel. So, it's the, uh, the, the guy, God says, I want, to, I want to dwell among you. I want to pitch my tent. My tent. That's, that's the tabernacle. It's God's tent. The word tabernacle and tent is the same thing, right? So, uh, we think of tabernacle as a noun, but it can be a verb or a noun just like tent. God says... Uh, you know, I want a tent among you. I want to pitch my tent among you. I'm going to dwell among you. And I want the land, I don't want the land to be defiled because I want to dwell among you. But it's the same language that God uses in Revelation 23. Um, Revelation 21, sorry, let's read there. It's a beautiful picture. God wants to dwell among his people. This is God's desire, that we can be his people, that he can dwell among us. Revelation 21, starting at verse 1, I saw new heaven, new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth that passed away. There was no more sea than I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them, and be their God. 
And God will wipe away every tear from the eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things that passed away. Is this God's plan? God, God's desire is he wants, he wants his people to be a holy people, that he can make his dwelling among us, that he can be with us. And uh, we, we see that at the very end of the scriptures as well. Um, and Numbers 36 is a... Uh, it's the final chapter. That's the final chapter. It's a further clarification of what was addressed in Numbers 27 about the uh, what happens if a the daughters of Zelova had story... Uh, their father had no sons, he only had daughters, and so this is requirements about that, if a situation like that, that the women have to marry, they, they can inherit the land, but they have to marry men who are within their tribe so that the land remains within the tribe that they came from. Uh, so, that's the book of Numbers. That's it, the whole book of Numbers. That's the whole book of Numbers, there you go. Um, just, just a few closing comments, having gone through the whole book, um, I think Numbers is a very important book for Christians to understand. And I think mo- most Christians have no, have no appreciation for uh, how important this book is. I mean, for one thing, Jesus assumes that you, that you know the details of the story. Think about it. He points, in John 3, he points to the example of the, the bronze serpent story in Numbers 21 to talk about his, it's a, it's a figure of his, his uh, crucifixion. And then he points to the example of Balaam in Revelation chapter 2, which points back to the Numbers 25 story about the, the, the people who died uh, because of the immorality and the idolatry. And also Numbers 31 where it explains that that was because of Balaam led them into the sin. So Jesus is referring to three places in Numbers, things that most Christians would consider to be obscure details. So he assumes you know the story. Peter, Paul, and Jude also point to different aspects of the story as having very practical application for us. The most famous one to me is 1 Corinthians 10, where the whole story of the journey is is a map of the Christian life. The people start off in Egypt in the land of darkness. They pass through the water. They're baptized into Moses and the cloud and the sea. And then they go on a journey. They're tested and tried and tempted. Most of them don't make it. But Joshua and Caleb make it all the way to the promised land. So Joshua and Caleb are good examples for us to follow. And uh, the other 600,000 provide some other kinds of examples for us to learn from as well. They're warnings for our benefit. The other thing is we see Jesus throughout the book of Numbers in so many ways. Even his name is revealed, as we talked about, where Hosea, the son of Nun, his name was changed to Jesus, and you know, that's, that's the Greek word is Jesus in the Septuagint, or, or Joshua, the Greek word. Uh, and he's the one who would take over after Moses. He would finish the job begun by Moses. He would lead the people into the promised land. And he would make sure that the people were not left like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, he's, Jesus is foreshadowed by the bronze serpent lifted up in the wilderness and the, the wonderful prophecies that we read from Balaam. And then we learn about all kinds of sins, valuable lessons. We learn about the sins of complaining. People complain about all kinds of things. Uh, uh, faithlessness, the, the, the ten spies who, who, just, who, who saw the obstacles 
and didn't have faith in God that God could could help could 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 bring about the victory. The faithless ten spies was we learned that the dangers of faithlessness, of rebellion. Miriam and Aaron, Miriam who's struck with leprosy, and uh, Korah's rebellion where the earth opens up. We don't want to be rebellious people. The dangers of sexual morality. We revisited that today in the story of the the Midianite women leading the Israelites into sexual morality. And even, even in the case of Moses' disobedience and striking the rock the, the second time he was called to just speak to the rock, of just let's just do what the Lord says and, and keep it simple at that. And also for me, I really benefit from heroic examples to follow. Phineas is a hero to me. I want to be, I want to be like, like that man. He's, uh, there's a lot to learn there, okay? He was given, Phineas and all of his descendants were given the priesthood for, for what he did. And I, he, he's an example of a great man of God I want to follow and imitate. Joshua and Caleb are two other stellar examples, the, those who, who would make it all the way into the promised land. And then Moses, who was concerned, who, was, who genuinely had the heart of a good shepherd here, there's so much to learn from him as well. Um, and and uh, so I hope it's been a blessing to you, and uh, we, we just finished the book of Numbers. Amen.